0: AI is advancing at breakneck speed. Michael Chewy, a partner at the McKinsey Global Institute, or MGI, leads research on how this technology is reshaping business, the economy, and society more broadly. According to MGI, the next wave of AI-generated productivity improvements will send shockwaves to the labor market as it reaches and surpasses human level ability across a wide range of skills. But ultimately, it will make the world wealthier and healthier. We hope you enjoy this conversation.
1: Michael Chewy, thanks for joining us on Hardly Working. Thanks for having me on. Well, it's great to have you. And this is not the first time that we've had an opportunity to meet. Um, But the first conversation was so interesting, I felt like we had to come back uh, and and go a little bit deeper. Uh, Tell us about you. I'm really interested in your background, how you wound up at McKinsey doing what you do with uh, McKinsey Global Institute.
0: Well, how long do you have? No, I mean... uh...
1: (laughs) As long as you need, Michael.
0: I'll say the following. I mean, I, again, I've, I've been privileged to have a, had a number of professional experiences. Um, I think largely what I've found is that some of the most interesting things that uh, I've had the privilege to be able to do has been sort of betwixt and between different um, different existing disciplines. So in college, for instance, um I had this funny major called symbolic systems. It included some computer science, some linguistics, some philosophy, some psychology. I I did some artificial intelligence work. Um, When I went to grad school, I I, I, studied cognitive science and computer science, was trying to understand how um, the the field was human-computer interaction, how people interact with machines. Um, I was a delinquent graduate student. I ended up founding a nonprofit internet service provider, uh, becoming the chief information officer of a city government Um, clearly I was just procrastinating because when I quit my job I was done with my dissertation in six months Um, but um, I I do you know I I have a little bit of uh, um, uh, interest in many things Um, and so you know some of my my friends who who had gone to business school said you know consulting might be good for you given Mm -hmm. your diverse interests because as a consultant you get to see different industries, do different types of work and so that's how I ended up at McKinsey um, and did get to you know, serve technology clients, financial institutions, um, you know, just a, a, a nice variety of different things. And then there's this, uh, funny part of McKinsey called the McKinsey global Institute, um, which basically does research. Um, and, uh, um, you know, I had a bit of a research bent. I went to graduate school, for instance, uh, my father is an academic. Um, and so, uh, somehow found my way there. Um, And so now I sometimes describe my role as being akin to a private sector uh, professor. I don't get tenure by any means, Mm. uh, but I do get to do research. Um, Instead of graduate students, I have uh, McKinsey consultants uh, join for our research, and they're super motivated people, and so that's a great privilege. Um, I get to do some writing and speaking, and and I get to uh, help some of my colleagues serve clients on the topics on which I've done research.
1: So tell me what your dissertation was on.
0: Uh, it was on the Usability of Web Search Engines. Uh, the, the title was,
1: uh, I Still Haven't Found What I'm Searching For. It's uh... <laughs> So you have a sense of humor in addition to being a... My dissertation uh, advisor
0: yeah. was Irish, so, you know, I, yeah. actually, I, I sometimes use song titles. Yeah,
1: yeah, that's, that's terrific. Um, so uh, you said your dad was an academic, um, and uh, is that how you kind of got the idea that 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 might be the pathway for you, um, in terms of your career?
0: Yes. Um, there are things about my dad's, um, you know, work as a professor, which really appealed. Um, he's, he's in the medical field um, Ah, he's a developmental hematologist. Um, and the, the, uh, the life of the mind contributing to society by, um, you know deriving insights that can be used i mean it's remarkable you know the, the the field that he's he studied for many years um these blood diseases called thalassemias um uh, you know very difficult diseases uh in some ways often fatal and you know you know I, again i'm now have the privilege of looking at technologies um and some of the technologies we've published on are by you know we described the we had a report called the Biorevolution. and some of these diseases that my father spent decades studying, now there are basically cures mm, um, mm, with a singular, because of genetic manipulation, the ability to cure these really severe diseases, and so it's it's remarkable to see how these things have
1: happened. Just to pull on that thread a little bit, I mean, uh, and get closer to our top, the topic at hand um, has have you seen how. Uh, the, uh, art, uh, you know, technologies of associated with artificial intelligence are impacting that work in terms of, you know, unlocking, uh, unlocking the answers to some of these thorny questions? Yeah,
0: for sure. I mean, the use of AI in science is a, a burgeoning field. Uh, it's really remarkable. Um, and, and biological sciences, for instance, again, all this genetic, you know, information that one has, but then you know, this ontology, phylogeny—the whole idea that that how those genetic uh, codes get expressed in the real world—just is so much more data to understand. And um, you know, the artificial intelligence is really great at at um, at analyzing huge amounts of data. You might be familiar with this uh, this protein folding problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's uh, so many different types of ways that proteins and how they're physically. Uh, uh, their physical shape, uh, which dynamic it moves over time, is a real big problem. Um, and some of the researchers at DeepMind um, have had worked on it really hard. And, and you know, some people have said they solved it. I mean, there's a lot more because you know they mm-hmm. solve some static versions of it, and you know, the proteins move and they interact. So there's more work to be done. But nevertheless, using these techniques that were designed to do other things and applying them to science uh, really is incredibly powerful. Yeah, so we amazing. see those Yeah,
1: I, I, I was. You know, when people start talking to me about AI pauses, I always like to ask them, is that the kind of thing that you want to pause on? Do you want to pause on cures of deadly diseases? Uh, what, what exactly are we pausing here? So, um, and, and I think the, you know, it's easy to sort of frighten people into pauses, but they should also be frightened by what happens uh, if they do pause in terms of the things that we're for, foregoing. Uh, in terms of you know materially benefiting uh, the human race,
0: yeah, these technologies are incredibly powerful. Artificial intelligence and the other ones we've studied as well, and and you know I often say, you know they're 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 uh, they're levers uh, in the sense of you know creating more power, um, mm. and how you use them really matters because uh, mm. as you suggested, they can do so much good in the world, mm-hmm. um, but also used in, um, in bad ways, um, again, ha- have the potential for real harm. So, uh, it's, it's
1: yeah. A I, and, I, and I want us to get to that. I want to get your perspective on, on the alignment question and, you know, what are some of the principal hazards we need to avoid? Um, let's do the, let's do the positive side first though. Um, because I know that you, uh, based on our previous conversation that you feel pretty strongly that, uh, not only is this going to happen, but that uh, in terms of the widespread use of AI and its integration into the economy, but it's something that we need to do. Uh, and so so talk about some of your recent research, you know in terms of what we what we might be able to gain uh, in terms of productivity and wealth and um, uh, it, it just like the the big picture of the economy, both here and abroad.
0: I mean, if we start with a really, really big picture, um, you know, we've we've benefited over many, many decades um, from economic growth. I mean, you, you could obviously there's some challenges about how that you know, growth is distributed. There are still people who who suffer and, and they don't haven't benefited as much as many of the rest of us. But nevertheless, overall, our lives are better because over decades we've had compounding economic growth, which allows us to pay for. Everything from healthcare to our own welfare to to our education and all those sorts of things. And, you know, part of that has come about because we have more people so they can generate more, you know, uh, good things, you know, innovate more, do work and all those sorts of things and then enjoy the fruits of that labor. And part of it is because of increases in productivity, because, you know, over time, through the use of technology and management, for every hour that somebody works in the economy, they're able to produce more. And so that, you know... That, that's really important too, and what we also know is that the world is getting older, mm. uh, and in fact, in many countries in the world, um, because of demographics, the workforce is either slowing down in its growth, and in many countries, whether it's you know in Western Europe, um, whether it's in China, whether it's in the United States, that growth in the workforce is either you know slowing down or in some cases declining. We're um, just get, just because of demographics. And so what that means if we're going to have economic growth if we're going to have better lives for our children than we have the only other thing we can do is increase productivity and what we know is that in many cases the rate of productivity growth has slowed down over the past decade or two uh it jumps around a little bit as you know but one of the things that that one of the the promises or one of the potentials of technologies like ai is to accelerate productivity growth again and so again if we can have AI and these other technologies do some of what we're currently doing with our hands and minds and by the way then repurpose that time that we have available to us then that can increase increase productivity growth and you know if, if the economy grows and we get that those benefits to, to everybody um, we'll all benefit from that if we don't then we won't be able to pay for everything from you know, dealing with climate change to you know, better education for our children and all those sorts of things. So that's, that's the incentive. We've been studying this for actually uh, you know, since 2016, or we've been analyzing it since 2016. What, what we did this year is try to update some of our analyses because you know, we, as many others have noted, is the advent of generative AI as a, a new vector of potential. Um, And what we found is the potential to accelerate productivity growth because these technologies enable more and more uh, work to be done by machines. Um, Again, we should come back to the question about, well, what will people do? But nevertheless, um, if we are able to to have machines do more than every hour that everybody works, um, they'll be able to be more more productive, and that can lead to good, um, you know, stronger economic growth, which can support everything
1: we want to do. Every, we can support a lot of things we want to do. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> it's supporting everything we want to do is never possible. We live in a, in a world of limited resources, but I take your point. Uh, that's that's exactly right. I'm curious. You just sparked an idea in my head that I hadn't really considered before, but we've talked a lot about you know, the impact of AI um, autom- and uh, automation. People... It's like that term gets confusing to people like, what are we automating here? And what, what we're really talking about is automating cognitive processes. Um, and previous rounds of automation were more in the physical domain of, you know, we build robots and the robots do the work, the physical work that um, that we had, you know, previously had to do ourselves. But I'm, I'm curious about another dimension of this and whether you've thought about it Um you know, you talked about the aging of the population. One of the aspects of aging is sort of declining cognitive flexibility, and that gets expressed in a bunch of different ways. One of the, I think one of the ways that it gets expressed is sort of um, declining dynamism uh, in older societies. You know, it's not just that we get older and we don't want to work as hard or we, we're not able to work as hard as we used to, but uh, our, our brains are older. And we're not as insightful, and we're not as dynamic. Do you think that AI at that level of uh, of automation uh, holds some potential to sort of help human beings keep their edge, as it were, in terms of that uh, that the insights uh, that that help to drive the economy forward?
0: So, yes. If you will, if you allow me, just a quick sidebar though on, yeah. on a previous comment that you just made, I, I you said that you know previous rounds of automation were all, were predominantly physical. In some senses, I think that's true, but I think we often um, we often uh, don't realize how much automation has occurred. Right? I mean, like I have a robot in my home. It's a dishwasher i don't call it a robot right mm-hmm. but it actually you know automates something that otherwise you know i would have had to, to do there's a whole bunch of cognitive automation that i think we just don't realize is there spreadsheets i mean mm-hmm. at some point mm-hmm. if i didn't have a spreadsheet i mean i'd be punching a calculator for a long long time right in order to, to and making a lot of a mistakes so, yeah. <laughs> so so I, I think we you know once once the automation occurs you often don't even recognize that that's mm-hmm. happened Let's come back to the old folks, uh, which we are all getting older, right? right so, that's right. Uh, I, I, mean, I have a
1: vested interest in this question. <laughs> so,
0: I mean, I think there's there's some you know neurological facts uh, which are true, but uh, you know, I think I think we exaggerate the uh, lack of flexibility as people get older and the ability to learn. I mean, you, you see people going back to college, uh, you know, after they retire because they have that opportunity, um, and, and so. But but to your point about uh, AI perhaps being able to, you know, you can do crossword puzzle or whatever, but but again, if AI is able to have a conversation with you, able to, you know, be your quote-unquote co-pilot for doing
1: mm-hmm.
0: the creative activities, whether it's physical, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, uh, uh, visual arts or whether it's, you know, write a poem together or... Gosh, I, I really, you know, I've always had this idea for a novel. I just can't get the r- first paragraph written. And, <laughs> hey, you know, look, I can ask it to write yeah. the first paragraph for me, and I might not accept it. I want, but, you know, it, the hardest thing oftentimes in writing for many of us is those first few sentences. And if the system can just, you know, create those first few sentences for you yeah i I think it can be helpful
1: well i mean it's interesting this uh cognitive rigidity question comes up in some interesting ways right because you know i spend a lot of time talking about this evangelizing for ai um uh with you know people who are closer to my own age um and the universal response is please, I I don't even want to program the remote on my TV. Don't tell me that I have to learn this. And I think that that's, that's what I mean, almost by the cognitive rigidity is like, I've got so many things that I need to deal with. And you're asking me to take on this new thing. And, uh, and, and people, the, I I think it's really rooted in the nature of the brain itself. Like it's a, it's a self-protective response, you know, like, I've only got so much time and energy uh, that I can devote to uh, new stuff and uh, I don't want to put it, I don't want to place the bet here. Um, So that's kind of what I meant by, you know, like that, that slowdown in dynamism is like people who are overloaded already. uh, And then we're asking them to do one more thing and yet that one more thing is so important. There was a really interesting study that came out from Accenture, not to mention any uh, competitors uh, of your uh, potential competitors of yours, but on, you know, the the need for CEOs to upskill around AI. Uh, They have to lead from the front here. You can't can't hang back, you know, and let everybody else do this work. You've got to take it on yourself. So that's kind of what I was driving at in terms of that rigidity and that, that, um, you know, the things that we give up as we get older. um...
0: I do think there's a bit of a hump for anything to do something new, right? I mean, we are creatures of habit. And so, um, you know, in in some of the other work that I've talked about, you know, if it's not in the workflow, it doesn't get used. Um, So one has a workflow or a flow of life. But what's interesting about particularly the generative AI technologies Mm -hmm. is how little training you need in order to use it can just type something in and it will respond to you just type something in in english and you know ask a question you know you know <laughs> what does michelangelo you know have in common with shakespeare and it will come up with an answer for you so you know in, in some of our own surveying we've been serving thousands of executives and their use of ai their organization's use of ai um, for the better half of a, a better part of a decade um, and one of the remarkable things, you know, this year we've we've surveyed them on their use of generative AI in addition to, oh, it's almost funny to call it traditional AI, but, you know, other forms of AI. And one of the remarkable things is um, we didn't normally ask these types of questions, but we did this time uh, about the respondents' personal use of, uh, or individual use of it. Mostly we're asking, does your organization do this? Does your organization derive cost benefits, all those sorts of things? Here we ask, do you use it? And what's interesting is, uh, you know, to your point, um, yes, frontline workers used it. Um, we have a mix of people, not just executives, women, but managers, middle managers used it, um, both at work as well as in their personal lives. But the suite, C-suite respondents used it as often as other people, hmm. in uh, other people in the corporate hierarchy, uh, both personally as well as in work. And that's remarkable because yeah. – you know, again, I have the privilege of studying many, many different technologies, but, you know, I'd say <laughs> what CEO says, oh, yes, I took advantage of service-oriented architectures yesterday, right? I mean, that's just <laughs> yeah, that's just not something that happens, but this technology in some sense is so accessible um, that it has the potential. If you get over the initial hump of, oh, yeah, I need to sign in and try this thing out, but once, once you want to try it out, there's not a lot of training you need in order to, to start using it.
1: It's really interesting. I was just last week, I was meeting with some executives with a major real estate company out in um, out in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And uh, it was it definitely broke down on generational lines like the, the younger the worker, or the younger the person in the room, the more likely it was that they had been um, that they had been using it. And the most senior people were like. Looking for somebody else to handle it for them. So I, it probably varies. Uh, that's certainly just one data point, um, but I think that the it, the uh, I'm, I'm relieved to hear that the survey data indicates that there's broader use than um, that might be apparent just by looking uh, at at people's reactions. Let's shift uh, a bit to some of the work that you've been doing about sort of the pace of change within AI itself. I found that to be really intriguing that some of the capacities, um, many of the capacities with the advent of um, generative AI seem to have uh, accelerated quite a bit in terms of when we can expect those technologies to reach kind of um, high levels of, uh, equal to high levels of human performance. Walk walk us through, um, sort of the conclusions you reached and why you think that's the case and what it portends for the future.
0: Yeah, I mean, if you don't mind me getting into a little bit of the methodology just to get a sense for what, you know, the, the research that we've been doing. Um, you know, one, one of the things when we started this work back, you know, in 2016 or so, we recognized um, is that it's actually quite rare that someone's entire occupation you know, someone's entire job will be automated. Like a robot will come in to do everything that you did because we all have a really heterogeneous work lives. We all do different activities. And so, you know, the, number one, methodologically, we look at different activities. Um, you know, we're, we're lucky to be able to leverage a, 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 a data set called O-Net and you know, roughly 20 to 30, as they call them, detailed work activities uh, per occupation. Uh, but then we also score those against different, Capabilities, as you were describing them, of things that you know people do. So whether it's understanding natural language or using gross motor skills to pick up and move things, um, just understand for each of these activities, what capabilities do you need? And then we we wanted to know what can technology do today, AI, robotics, all these other technologies, and how might that evolve over the future? And so the people we asked for that, I mean, I have a PhD in computer science, but I'm not, you know, I'm going to say I'm going to score everything. We look for people who are, are, you know, in the business of developing these technologies, people in labs, um, you know, whether it's corporate research labs or, or academic research labs, people who are really trying to develop these technologies, to have them say, look, you know are you at median human capability in producing producing natural language or is technology there if it's not then when might it reach then when might it reach top quartile performance and so you know we have this this collective view and we you know put these ranges around it because different people answer different um, different dates and times and and the interesting thing is uh, we did that back in 2016 2017 and we just did it again the, this year after after you know gen ai you know became much more prominent uh, and roughly speaking the latest technologies uh, have moved everything to the left in other words we're reaching human capabilities and even high level human capabilities faster than we anticipated you know six or seven years ago in particular uh, you know when it comes to things around natural language uh, historically, that's been a really hard problem mm. in artificial intelligence, uh, particularly understanding natural language. I mean, language is complicated. We have irony. You know, people speak sarcastically. You know, not always grammatically. You know, all the things that, you know, we were oh, early on when I studied data structures. You know, you could, you know, parse a tree of a sentence. But people often don't speak in sentences, right? Yo or whatever. Yeah. Right. I mean, people <laughs> say, well, say all kinds of things, and understanding it's really hard. Um, but now with these large language models, and, and so so basically back in 2016, 2017, when we assessed when would, um, you know, machines, artificial intelligence, reach median human capability to understand natural language, like real natural language, all the stuff that's complicated. You know, again, there was a wide range, but the assessment was roughly late 2030s, maybe 2040s, something like that, in the middle of the range, right, the median range. But now after LLMs, large language models, Generative AI has arrived, roughly the assessment is that capability is here now. Again, these things don't work perfectly, but you know, there's a wide range of median human capability, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, of, of human capability. And so that's a that's a, a real big speed up. And what we also know from you know mapping these capabilities to these work activities that we studied. There's a large percentage of the work that we do that requires us to understand natural language i mean to record a podcast you have to be on lunch but also to be right you know to to read a memo so that you can respond and, and so what that means is it's unlocked a lot of different activities which were otherwise gated by an inability of machines to understand natural language um, at these levels of capabilities so what that means is it's accelerated the potential for these types of technologies to increase productivity, as we just talked about.
1: So let's uh, go just a little bit further down that trail, because one of the aspects of the report, your report, that I found most interesting, in some ways the most uh, alarming, because it challenged one of my own sort of central theses, which is Look, social emotional skills, uh, social uh, emotional reasoning, social reasoning, social perception, these things, you know, they are so intricate. They're not really language based per se. They're, you know, they involve our ability to read sort of physical expression along with words and combine those things uh, to derive meaning. And um, that was one of the areas where uh, it seemed like there had been. Unexpectedly great progress. Um, what do you think that portends? I mean, I think all the way back to the book AI Superpowers or Super Superpower, where the author was arguing, you know, look, it's these these human things are kind of off the, off the table for AI. Uh, the The things that are distinctively human, our ability to perceive one another's emotions and respond to them without talking about it. Uh, is uh, is really not something that's on the table for AI? This research seems to suggest that it is. Um, do you agree with that, or uh, am I am I misreading?
0: Well, I, I do want to distinguish between um, the analysis that we were doing, which is roughly um, when these systems can exhibit the behaviors that are appropriate, particularly in the workplace. Uh, that are related to, as you said, social emotional um, understanding uh, outputs, and uh, quote unquote reasoning, uh, versus asserting that these machines feel anything. Um, you know, back when I studied philosophy, it was qualia or that you know that that you can attribute actual emotions to machines, mm-hmm. and uh, we're not stating any of those things about you know the machines angry or the machines. Sad, or it's empathetic, uh, or it, it it feels empathy. Let me be clear. Um, but what we are assessing is that increasingly machines are able to respond appropriately to things that involve social and emotional issues. And you know, if if you go to you know one of these generative AI systems and ask it to write an angry poem. Um, <laughs> It it will yeah. write something that yeah. can be interpreted as angry. If you write melancholy, it will write something that suggests me- melancholy. Or if you say, "I am sad, can you cheer me up?" Uh, it will write something. And again, it might not resonate with you. But you could say that to another person, and it might mm-hmm. not resonate with you. And so, in some senses, it, these systems are starting to respond, appro- or uh, if not appropriately, with regard to. Things that that uh, fit these, and again, it we're by no means stating that they are feeling anything, um, but is it responding to the things that we consider to be emotional or or social? Um, we observing that 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 is increasingly the case.
1: So that's really interesting, uh, Michael. I, I want to refer to a study that I ran into just in the last ten days. About sort of the next frontier of the social-emotional sensing uh, and behavior as it relates to, um, to artificial intelligence. And what this study posited was that the main thing that separates the, um, the algorithm, the artificial intelligence entity from the human is that human beings, uh, when their brains are working correctly anyway, uh, have, are able to develop a theory of mind about other people. You know, we can look at people's eyes and kind of judge, are, are they happy, are they sad? Um, with, uh, and that this is kind of the next frontier, is to try to impart that kind of theory of mind to the AI. And I wanted to get your, uh, your take on that, uh, that literature, even if you haven't read the particular study that I'm referring to.
0: This is really fun stuff to talk about, to be honest. Uh, There's a lot going on because there are interesting uh, experiments even in biology about does the dog understand what, or the octopus have a view of what I'm thinking and Mm -hmm. why I might be doing something. Um, And so there are a bunch of experiments and, and, and what's interesting about artificial intelligence is that they've become so complicated. You know, when I first started citing, you know, neural networks, a few dozen artificial neurons was a reasonably sized network. And now we're talking about billions of parameters. And these things are so complicated that, that we really don't understand what's going on in them. Uh, and there's a lot, that's a lot of research, too, to try to figure out what's happening inside. You know, a bunch of the theory of mind stuff is, you know, can these systems describe something that you could attribute to them understanding what you, you know, what you're thinking. Um, uh, I, I, I guess what I would assert is that at this point, it's really hard to tell whether or not it's just behaving in an appropriate way. Right. I mean, we, we talked about LLMs, you know, being trained to predict the next word. Um, hmm. is it just predicting the next word in a way that, uh, that I interpret as having a theory of mind about me or inside those billions of weights and neurons, there actually is some theory of mind in there. And so I think we're, we're like, Brett, do I know that you're thinking in there? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I can tell what you're thinking.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I think I, I can tell by looking at you that you're really enjoying talking about this. Um, and uh and uh if i were uh, an ai i would probably say well this is productive uh i want to i want to continue this th- uh you know and i'm going to ask you more questions about it so i can i can get more of this kind of feedback that i'm getting from you <laughs> clearly ai is not th- not there it's not uh it's not enjoying uh or not en- it's not enjoying or not not enjoying it's just that's not what ai does um very, very, very interesting. Um, So put, uh, I know you're at the Institute, but putting on the consultant uh, hat for a second. um, You know, when it comes to AI, I, I, you know, when I look at it, it's like, well, there's a whole bunch of this, of these tools and things that are kind of emerging, rapid fire, a dozen new ones every day, or two dozen new you know, Chrome extensions, it'll do all sorts of things for you. Um, But that's not really the point, right? The, The point is, like, how long does this take, how long is it going to take businesses to actually embed these technologies in their processes in a way that leads to the productivity increases that we would very much like to see for all the reasons you've already stated. Uh, where are we on that curve, do you think, um, in terms of uh, – and where where might we be in a year in terms of actual adaptation and adoption of the technologies into uh, – outside of what we think of as the high-tech industry and into the rest of the economy of services and goods? I mean, there's this old saying
0: um... – the the future does not repeat the past but it rhymes um you know and there there was this you know Solo paradox for bob solo back in the in the 90s where you know we we see the computer age everywhere but the productivity statistics and you know eventually I, you know my 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 predecessors at mgi were, were fortunate enough to work with them later and, and basically again it's something that i think we're going to see here too you know the the advances in technology far predate the ability to actually use them in a productive way because you need these complementary management innovations coupled with the technology in order to really drive, um, you know, differences in productivity and performance. And so I think we're going to see this here as well. And, in fact, it takes quite some time, years, for these technologies plus the the um, uh, complementary management innovations um, to, to, to fully diffuse through the economy. However, the other thing I've often said is you can move – fast in micro even if you move slow in macro and what i mean by that is for an individual company you can move much much faster than the economy does and that's to your benefit because then you have competitive advantage in some cases for years if you get out ahead of all your competitors and so we are seeing leading companies and not just high tech companies i mean you know there's this saying about software is eating the world so every company eventually is a a, Mm -hmm. a tech company sure every company now says they're an ai company but uh, you know whether you're a auto manufacturer whether you're a financial institution if you use these technologies to competitive advantage you know use the management innovation change the way that you operate and use these technologies you can in fact get ahead of your competitors whether it's you know marketing better whether it's providing best better you know customer experiences whether it's improving your operational efficiency um, that's the opportunity that's there now eventually the rest of everybody catches up and we you know the Bureau of Labor Statistics finds it in the in the productivity statistics but in the meantime uh, it can be used as a competitive advantage so yes we're seeing today companies that are deploying these technologies for a competitive advantage uh, but do I think it'll take quite some time before BLS says, oh mm-hmm. yeah,
1: uh, <laughs> yeah, we picked that, it up. That, the the signal's there now, yeah. yeah.
0: And that's no knock on folks at BLS, BLS right? I mean, their mm. job is to figure out what's happened in the entire economy based on all these micro uh, moves. But the micro moves happen.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah, that's a really good way to think about it. I mean, I, I what I say to people is that it's going to feel slow. And then uh, in ten years, we're going to look back and say, "Wow, that was really fast." Um, You know, like the the cumulative effects won't show up until then, and we'll say, "Boy, the world was really different ten years ago than it is right now." Uh, But in the meantime, it's going to like you know, everybody looking at their watches and say, "Okay, I was you know, where are the jetpacks? I was promised a jetpack, and where's my jetpack?" And in the AI version of that, and you know, some people will get those jetpacks earlier than others, and, you know, they won't be evenly distributed.
0: I think the other funny thing is, these jetpacks, a lot of people have them already, and they're using them. They might just not have told their bosses that's true. Uh, We see this anecdotally, and, uh, you know, potentially in our survey already, people are sort of using it off the side of their desk. Mm -hmm. Um, That might not, mean, for example, for software engineering, right now, you can just, like, ask these systems to write some software for you and again it's not perfect you have to debug it and fix it you know etc that greatly accelerates the productivity of software engineering Uh, but how is that being captured by the employers of these are they just having another latte (laughs) or you know maybe they are becoming more productive you know how does that get captured by the enterprise um or, by the way, sometimes you might just give it back to the employees, right? People have talked right. about the four day work week forever. Gaines yeah. talked about, you know, so, you know, you do have this choice. If you free up time, what are you going to do with it?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Um, okay. So uh, we're getting close to the end. And I, there's one more question I really wanted to get your thoughts on, which is particularly since March, there's been a lot of, like, you know, sort of, oh boy. Uh, the more skills you have, the more exposed your job is to AI. Uh, and so, unlike other rounds of automation where it was really uh, lesser skilled workers that were most exposed, like now we're talking about people with lots of education, lots of work experience. What do you make of that? Is that, uh, is that a realistic concern? Or uh, does the economy just grow, and we we create new things for people to spend their time on?
0: I mean, it is one of the remarkable things about generative AI as a technology that we highlighted in our research too. Again, labor economists will be familiar with skill bias, technological change, and as you were saying, it you know man, many of the historical forms of automation great most affected low middle scale skill uh, low middle wage workers and those. I hate the term low-skilled, but it is you know occupations that have lower educational attainment requirements. These technologies are almost the exact opposite, the generative AI technologies. They most affect people with the highest wages. They most affect people who have the highest, in occupations with the highest levels of educational attainment requirements. Um, so yes, I think that, that it, it will affect um, lawyers. It will affect physicians. It will affect healthcare workers, STEM workers, all those sorts of things. Um, but... In many, you know, we modeled it for the United States, for instance. Um, these effects, plus other effects, uh, even net of these effects, we still see, you know, a number of different occupational categories growing. We we need more STEM. We need more software. Mm-hmm. Even if you you know increase the productivity of software engineers by fifty percent, we still need more software engineers. Mm-hmm. Uh, we still need more doctors. We still need more healthcare workers. Um, so I think it's worth looking at, you know, what the demand side is is for. Period. Um, and if we look at, you know, there's no, you know, Tim O'Reilly has said this, uh, you know, there's there's no shortage of good work to be done, even net of, you know, the, the stuff that the machines might have to do. But, you know, will people need new skills? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We're all going to have to change what we do. Yeah. Um, and hopefully we can make sure that people get paid for the yeah. work that there is to be done. Now There's a lot yeah. of care work. Is, they're not high road jobs. These are, and, and so... You know, we, we need to make sure people get paid for the work that, that we have for people. Yeah, and
1: this is the thread that connects all the other kinds of automation to this automation, which is let's not get clobbered over the head again uh, by unexpected change. Let's preposition our policies to support workers who we have no idea who's going to get, you know, really be affected in a negative way. Uh, let's just have you know policies in place that people who are negatively affected can get transition support, um, uh, which they're gonna, you know, some workers are going to need. We're all going to need to upskill. Maybe not me because I'll be, I'll be out of the workforce by all time by the time all this happens. But. Um, Anyway, some idea yeah, actually. Yeah, <laughs> have, yeah,
0: right. I mean, yeah. we 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 do believe, for instance, that you know, retail workers, in some cases, food service workers, some customer service workers, uh, office support, because of the susceptibility to a variety of different technologies, that demand in those areas, you know, might be places where more people will have to transition. And so, I think we can be a little, at least a little bit targeted. But in general, yeah. we're all going to have to change what we yeah. need to do.
1: Yeah, no, I agree. I agree completely. Michael Chui, thank you so much for your time here today and for the great work you're doing over at uh, McKinsey Global. Uh, And we anxiously await all of your next rounds of reports because we have been avid consumers of the analysis that you and, and the rest of the team over there are doing.
0: Well, thanks for having us on. Really appreciate it.
1: Thank you for joining us on this episode of Hardly Working. I'm your host, Brent Orrell, and I hope you tune in next time to learn more about the state of workforce development in America. Be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast. Let us know at vocation at AEI.org if there are any topics you'd like us to cover. As always, we hope you find the job that fits so well, it feels like you're hardly working.